This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Welcome to those arriving today. Welcome to those who've been sitting for seven days. Welcome to those in the Western lands. This session, we've been taking up and examining the stories of the ancestors of our lineage from Kazan Zenji's record of transmitting the light and uh, earlier I brought up the story that it looks like the Zen lineage may be fading in Japan, maybe on the verge of going extinct, at least the kind of like a monastic system that's been rolling along for a thousand years. Sashimi and such practices of immersion in the light. And uh, someone said to me, well, even if that happens, the light will find other ways to manifest and be transmitted even without so-called Zen. And I agree, the light, it can't be stopped because it didn't begin. And there'll be many beautiful ways there are now and will continue to be. But there is something unique about the wind of our house, the style of our school, the Zen lineage of Buddhas and ancestors, and the way that they transmitted the light. And uh, today I'm thinking of lineage as a kind of an art form. I heard that, uh, that this instrument that we call the guitar, uh, was invented across the Eurasian continent from Kazan during the lifetime of Kazan Zenji in the 14th century in Spain. There were precursors like the lute and the oud, but uh, that which came to be called guitar arose in, in Spain during Kazan's life. And this unique art form has been transmitted up to the present. And there was music before the guitar. And if the guitar were to go extinct, there would still be music. But isn't there something unique about this art form called guitar? 
that's evolved a lot since it was invented in, uh, in ancient Spain up through Jimi Hendrix and Jerry Garcia, almost redefined the, the art form of guitar and people continue to. But it won't necessarily always be around. There's other art forms of music. But for guitar enthusiasts, they maybe feel quite devoted to it. We should keep this unique, particular art alive. Say the same about the Zen lineage. It's a particular wind of this house that um, may be worth preserving simply because it's a unique and beautiful art form. Lineage is kind of a, a major part of Zen. It's not always emphasized, but it seems to be. For example, uh, tomorrow, three courageous people will, um, will step into a ceremony of receiving the precepts and taking refuge in Buddha in a um, ceremonial artistic form that's been transmitted through the lineage. And uh, the obvious aspect of taking refuge in Buddha and uh, committing to these bodhisattva precepts is the face of the ceremony. But at the end of the ceremony, they also, um, if, they, if they make it through the ceremony, at the end, they will receive this document called the Kechinyaku, the, the blood vein or the blood lineage of the Buddhas and ancestors. And that document is a list of the ancestors in Kazan's transmission of light from Shakyamuni Buddha up to their teacher with a, a blood line, a red line running through every name from the, uh, from the foot of one ancestor into the head of the next ancestor, from the foot of that ancestor into the head of the next ancestor. Uh, and then these new bodhisattvas will have their name added at the bottom. And from their feet, the red bloodline will uh, circle back to the top of the document into a round, round, empty circle. And from there, continues into the head of Shakyamuni Buddha, out through his feet into Mahakashapa's head, and so on, circulating endlessly and beginninglessly. So there's something that's part of our, our uh, kafu, our house wind, that when you, when you take refuge in Buddha and receive the precepts, you're also connecting with this lineage of ancestors. 
tapping into their light and its transmission. That's the style of our house. And this week we've been looking at um, some of the Indian ancestors and the way that they transmitted the light to each other. And uh, because this is Rohatsu Session, celebrating the Buddha's great awakening. Tomorrow in a big ceremony, today in this moment, I thought that let's go back today to this, the first chapter of the Denko Roku, the chapter on Shakyamuni Buddha, the beginning of the story. At least what seems kind of like the beginning of the story. All these stories are, are meetings of, of a teacher and a student of two people uh, meeting. Each story is a story of a meeting. And we might wonder, well, what about Shakyamuni Buddha sitting there under the Bodhi tree? He didn't get to have a meeting to receive the light. But in fact, in the story, there is a meeting. This meeting is with the morning star as dawn was breaking in Magadha under the Bodhi tree on Rohatsu morning. The Buddha looked up and saw the morning star, met, met the light, and the light was transmitted in that meeting. He understood for the first time what the morning star was. He couldn't find any morning star other than the knowing of it. His story goes like this. Shakyamuni Buddha saw the morning star and was enlightened to the way, awakened to the way, and said at that moment, I and the great earth and all beings simultaneously attain the way. Jodo, that ceremony we celebrate tomorrow in Japan, it's called Jodo A, the attainment of the way ceremony, Buddhist awakening. And actually the uh, precept ceremony called Zaike Tokudo is uh, attaining liberation or salvation. Everything's celebrating this great realization of Shakyamuni. So that's the case for today. And Kazan tells the story of Shakyamuni Buddha in brief. Shakyamuni Buddha was of the sun race in India, the, the sun clan. Some people say he was descended from the sun itself which is maybe why he had such an intimate relationship with the morning star. 
at the age of 19, I think usually the, in the foundational vehicle teachings, they say it was the age of 29. He leapt over the palace walls in the dead of night. And at Mount Dantaloka, he cut off his hair. Subsequently, he practiced austerities for six years. Later, he sat on the Vajra seat, the indestructible seat under the Bodhi tree, where spiders spun webs in his eyebrows and magpies built a nest on top of his head because he was sitting so still for so long. Reeds grew up between his legs as he sat tranquilly and upright without moving for six years. At the age of 30, the foundational vehicle, I think, sits 35. On the eighth day of the 12th month, which in Japanese is Rohatsu, as the morning star appeared, he was suddenly enlightened, awakened. And these words in the above story are his very first lion's roar. From that time on, for 49 years, he did not spend a day alone, but taught the Dharma for the assembly constantly. He was never without one robe and one begging bowl. And thus, he lacks nothing. During that time, he taught the assembly more than 360 times. The foundational vehicle would probably say thousands and thousands of times. Later, he transmitted the treasury of the eye of true dharma to Mahakashapa. And it's been passed down from Mahakashapa to generation after generation to the present. Truly, it has been transmitted through India, China, Japan, and America. <laughs> Where the practice of the true dharma is based on it. The practices of his lifetime are the standards for his descendants. Even though he possessed 32 marks and 80 minor marks, these are like signs of marks of Buddhas in old India, like long earlobes and, um, and a little curl of hair between his eyes. That kind of like are the marks of Buddhas in the old days. So he had these special Buddha marks, but he certainly looked like an ordinary old monk and it was no different from other people. Therefore, after his appearance in the world, throughout the three times of the true dharma, the counterfeit dharma, and the present age of decline, says here, the collapsed dharma, which can be renewed moment to moment by our practice, making it the true dharma, Throughout all these periods, those who emulate Buddha's teaching and conduct model themselves on his deportment, used what he used. Like we use these 
Rakasu is like these, these Buddha robes and I'll use these Buddha bowls, just like the Buddha. And, uh, and in each moment while walking about, standing in place, sitting or lying down, we do as the Buddha did. Buddha after Buddha and ancestor after ancestor have simply transmitted this so that the true Dharma is not cut off. And this event clearly indicates this. Even though the method of expression, various stories, figures of speech and words, these were all different on the more than 360 occasions during the 49 years of the Buddha's teaching. They are nothing more than the expression of this one principle. Principle means the story of looking up and seeing the morning star and roaring this lion's roar. Now, um, that's the background. Now, Kazan's Taisho. Commentary on the story. It's one of my favorites in this book. Remember the Buddha's statement? I and the great earth and all living beings simultaneously attain the way. Kazan says, the so-called I in this story is not Shakyamuni Buddha. Shakyamuni Buddha comes from this I. Da. Not only does Shakyamuni come from it, but the great earth and all beings also come from this I. You just picked up on this one, you know, first word of the Buddhist statement. I and all beings attain the way together. Just as when a large net is taken up and the many openings in the net are also taken up, when you lift up like a fishing net, all the empty holes in the net, the spaces, <laughs> the empty spaces of the net are also lifted up. When Shakyamuni Buddha was awakened, the great earth and all beings were also awakened. Not just the great earth and beings, but all the Buddhas of the past, future, and present were also awakened, enlightened at this time. Since this is so, do not think that it was just Shakyamuni Buddha who was enlightened. You must not see any Shakyamuni Buddha apart from the great earth and all living beings. That's what the Buddha said too, right? All together, we all realize the way. Even though mountains, rivers, and their myriad forms flourish in great abundance, none of these are left out of Gotama's eye pupil. Gotama's 
Shakyamuni's Muni's family name. Now we're talking about not only his eye and all beings attain their way, but his, the pupil of his eyeball. All, all the mountains, rivers, and forms um, flourish in great abundance, and all none of them are left out of Gautama's eye pupil. None of them are not seen through the eye of Buddha. Ultimately, where are all these um, mountains, rivers, and, uh, and myriad forms? Ultimately, what are the GPS coordinates? <laughs> Where do they reside, these mountains and rivers and earth? They reside in Gotama's eye pupil. You might not have known that before. <laughs> Do they not reside in your eye pupil when you look at them? They're not so far away. They're right here in each of our eye pupils. And where is the eye pupil? Let's take a look for that. You here. <laughs> Need a mirror? Really can't see that eye pupil. When I look for the eye pupil, all I find is the, is the great earth and the mountains and rivers and all of you. It's just, it's like when I look, when I, when, when I look for the eye pupil and you look for your eye pupil, isn't it like you actually Look, look hard for the eye people. We see like this empty space filled with mountains and waters and so on. Do we not? And um, maybe that's how it was for Shakyamuni Buddha looking at the morning star. The morning star was not light years away, but right here, and morning star that's right here is also right now. Because at this time of the Buddha's seeing the morning star, how could it have been any other time than now for the Buddha? And how could that have been any other place but here for the Buddha? Same with each of us. How could we ever be anywhere other than here and any time other than now. And how could any mountains and rivers be any other, any other here than right smack in the middle of our eye people, which actually when we look carefully, seems to just be empty space filled with stuff. No other eye people I can see. Since this is so, do not think that it was just Shakyamuni Buddha who was enlightened. You must not see any Shakyamuni Buddha apart from the great earth and beings. 
And all of you here are also established in Gautama's eye pupil. Not only are you established in it, but rather it is enfolded within you. Or another translation of this, this wonderful line to contemplate. Not only are you established in the Buddha's eyeball, but that eye of the Buddha has become you. Shakyamuni's eye pupil has become each of you and I. Also, Gotama's eye pupil becomes these fleshy bodies, flesh and blood, bones bodies. Gotama's eyeball becomes these flesh and blood bodies. It becomes the whole body of each of us standing like an 80,000 foot precipice in each of us. Gotama's eyeball is standing like a thousand foot precipice in each of our whole bodies. This is not um, this is not just the flesh and bones body, but our whole body is filled with this. A thousand eighty thousand foot precipice is standing like an eighty thousand foot precipice in each of us. Therefore, do not think that from the past to the present there was a bright eye pupil and distinct people. Not like not some difference between the Buddha's eyeball and each of us. There's no distinction. It's not really that each of us is kind of reflected um, in the Buddha's eye exactly, or that all of us somehow are squeezed into Gautama's eyeball. There's just no distinction between this eyeball and each of us. You are Gotama's eye people, and Gotama is the entirety of each of you. If this is the way it is, if it is thus, what do you call this principle of attaining the way? Let me ask you, monks, does Gotama become enlightened with you, or do you become enlightened with Gotama? If you say that you become enlightened with Gotama, or that Gautama becomes enlightened with you, this is not Gautama's enlightenment. Therefore, this is not the principle of enlightenment. If it sounded kind of like, it was like that, wasn't it? Like we become enlightened with the Buddha and the Buddha becomes enlightened with us. But now Kazan's saying it's not like that. Because this with is a little bit too dualistic. Not like this Buddha over there, we're over here, we're going to do it with him. And he's going to do it with us. It's already too much separation. There's just one complete, all inclusive inseparable, undivided 
attaining the way. If you want an intimate understanding of enlightenment, you should get rid of you and Gotama at once. You that do this with Gotama and Gotama do this with you. Let go of you and Gotama at once and quickly understand the matter of I God. Forget about the Buddha and, and each of us. We have to understand this matter of I together with the great earth and all the beings. First of all, we focus on this first word, I. Uh, great teacher Rupert Spira has a great book called Being Aware of Being Aware. And uh, I recommend each um, word, phrase, and paragraph in this book. That's the kind of Teacher, I, I feel like Rupert Spire is. There's no ec extra anything. Every every sentence is is a complete plunging to reality. So um, in this book, he says the common name for the experience of being aware is. Any guesses? Awareness, yeah, that is one, that is a common name. There's, I guess there's many common names. That would be one, right? Mindfulness. Mindfulness, yeah. My, complete mindfulness where there's no um, anything extra. What are some other common names for the, for the experience of being aware? Awake, yeah. Consciousness, if we mean if we mean um, not necessarily dualistic consciousness. Present. Present, yeah, present or presence. Experiencing. Knowing. Hmm? Knowing. Knowing, yeah. We've talked about a lot of these. Maybe it has some, there's some uncommon names too, right? Like the, the perfect mirror and the, uh, the round moon shape and uh, I heard lots of them this week. Any other? Any other? It's Lady Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Gaga. <laughs> kind of uncommon, but actually that's the closest to what Rupert says. <laughs> he says the common name for the experience of being aware is I. The same Ga. Actually, Gaga. Actually, it might seem like God first, but Lady Gaga. Those who are just arriving, we've been talking about Lady Gaga this week. I'm sorry, I missed it. <laughs> God's the Japanese 
translation of this word I or self to be translated both I, me, or self. Kazan says at this point, um, if you want an intimate understanding of enlightenment, first get rid of this you and Gautama right now and quickly understand the matter of I. What? Rupert Spires says the common name for the experience of being aware is I. Kazan and Rupert would have a great conversation. Rupert goes on, I am aware of the thought of my friend. I am aware of the memory of childhood. I am aware of the feeling of sorrow, loneliness, or shame. And goes on for like a paragraph. All the things that I'm aware of, the colors of the zendo, I'm aware of their sounds of the car. In each of these examples, I is the name we give to that which knows or is aware of all knowledge and experience. I is the name we give to that which knows or is aware of all experience. When we say, I, especially all these examples he used are I am aware of this thought, I'm aware of this color, I'm aware of this sound. That I is the, uh, is that which knows or is aware. As such, Rupert says, I is the knowing or aware element in all knowledge and experience. I is awareness itself, he says. Now, um, Rupert Spire is conditioned by his main practice traditions of Advaita Vedanta and Tantric Shaivism. Of course, he knows about Buddhism and Zen, sometimes quotes Zen teachings. But um, we might say, well, that's all well and good for a, a Vedanta or a, a Shaivite. But um, what about us Zen Buddhists? I thought this I is kind of like the big no-no. Gaga is a no-no. After all, the Buddha's trademark teachings, Anatman, not self, over and over Buddha taught, this body is not self, these feelings are not self, these perceptions are not self, this, this dualistic consciousness is not myself or yourself. And uh, looking at these sentences that, um, that Rupert chose to demonstrate how I is a name for awareness itself, we noticed that all of his sentences said, um, had the word aware in them. I am aware of such and such, I'm aware of such and such, I'm aware of such and such. So, um, and I think that's true. If we're said, if we, if we, you know, to say and experience such a sentence, I'm aware of the spinning of the fans. What is that I? We could say that is just awareness itself. I'm aware of uh, all of you here. What is that I? That is awareness, that's aware. 
but if we if we say other sentences like uh, um, I'm in a lot of pain today, I think it's a kind of different. It's a little shift of, of what the I is. I'm in pain today is um, is different than I am aware of the pain today. It's just a little word difference, but I think that's that's the difference between the illusory personal small I and the um, the true all-pervading big I. I am aware of what's happening here. It's like the big I of awareness. I'm in pain. What is that I referring to? It's referring to this individual um, body and um, feelings and thoughts that are in pain. Yeah, so the mentioning happening to or happening as within our conversation we had we could say that that might be taking another step actually the pain is happening maybe maybe we could we could tie it in here the pain is happening to me is um we generally i think if we say a sentence like that we feel that i am um, this body and mind individual, if the pain is happening too, that the pain is happening in me, in as. me, as me, if we, if we lead to the pain is happening as me, then, yeah, as, as me or I, then it has a little different feeling, more like, uh, I, my nature, who I really am, is manifesting as pain. But it is interesting to notice our own language and notice if you, if if there is pain going on, see, or or pleasure for that matter, anything that's going on, and in fact there is always something going on. So this is this is a meditation that you could try out in zazen or anytime. For example, right now, you could you could try in the thought, I. I am comfortable or uncomfortable. Maybe you can fit into one of those categories right now, whichever it is. And see how, and then if someone were to ask, what, what's that I that said it's uncomfortable? Well, it's this, it's this body, it's a lot of it. And also the mind is kind of like, sort of, it's an uncomfortable mind, it's annoyed with an uncomfortable body. So, so the personal me, the body and mind, uh, personal, individual me, is uh, uncomfortable. But you can also try on the sentence, I'm aware of being uncomfortable, or I'm aware of discomfort. Just a little word added in there, a little shift of saying what sounds like the same sentence, but then does it actually shift the experience too? Yeah, the same discomfort exactly like there was before. But instead of I am being uncomfortable, I am aware of the sensation of discomfort. And who's and then some the same person were to ask, is that the same I? 
this body and mind individual might say it could be but actually maybe not maybe it's actually just awareness is aware of the discomfort see the difference and uh rupert doesn't really point that out here but, but i think because we're we're in an anatman tradition we want to be really careful with not um, thinking that this that Lady Gaga is just our personal self. And of course, Rupert also talks a lot about the illusion of the separate self and and the true self as as quite distinct. Koku, yes. Maybe one way, another exercise to work with that would be to stop the sentence with aware. I am aware. Well, you can fill in the blank after that, but if you stop with that, you have to ask, well, what's aware? Yes. Yeah. You can oh, feel it. You I. can say, I am aware, and you could say, of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, yeah. but notice the point that we're saying, I am aware, and kind of leave off the A, B, C, D, and, and just notice that we said, I am aware, and who is that? Yeah. It's yeah. the next, feels like the next after. Yeah, that's a good exercise, yes. And we still might feel that um, when I say, I am aware, we might feel like, who is aware? Um, me, the person, is aware. We, we're so used to thinking that way. Yeah. So um, that, then we can investigate. Well, really, let's look at what is this I that's aware? Or who am I? Is a classic Zen question. Somewhere in this record um, of Kazan, he he uh, he quotes, and I, don't, I probably couldn't find it because I don't, I don't remember where it is. But he he quotes Dogen that I think is not from one of Dogen's essays, but maybe it was a little oral transmission. He said Kazan says Dogen, my my Dharma great grandfather, said, "Who am I?" I am the one who asks, who am I? It's part of his commentary. But who is the I, really? Well, it must be this body and this individual body and mind, this collection of five aggregates and um, five skandhas, right? That's what the Buddha's actually taught this model, the system of the five aggregates to show us that there is no I in them. And even the collection of them, we might feel like that's who I am. I'm the collection of these five aggregates. No, that's not who I am. Or like, uh, or I am like the owner of the five aggregates. Often feels like that, right? My, it's my body and my mind. So don't mess with me. <laughs> but I'm not, that's the illusion. I'm not an owner. There is no owner. What is there in addition to five aggregates? There's nothing in addition to five aggregates that we can find. And the five aggregates are radically impermanent, changing moment to moment. There's no stable um, owner or um, controller. I'm the controller of the five aggregates. 
I'm up there in the control station, pulling your leverage, like, move his right hand a little bit. Okay, now make him think like, this is obnoxious. <laughs> or tell him to like, like, uh, be a better person. That was, um, just reminds me of um, this modern light bearer named um, Eckhart Tolle, way more famous than Kazan and the Zen ancestors in the world these days. But um, he was not interested in anything spiritual, didn't have any practice. He was super depressed. He was kind of at the end of his rope. He was contemplating suicide. And um, in his last hours, he, he said to himself, he felt like the one in the control tower or something. He said to himself, um, I really can't live with myself anymore. And then some kind of grace was there that, um, that opened him to the phrase he just said to himself, I can't live with myself anymore. He noticed that, huh, that's weird that I just thought that. <laughs> and um, who's the I that can't live with the self? It's like there's two different ones. I, like, I can't live with myself anymore. That I is like the little voice. It's like the controller, the owner. But it's like he doesn't make any sense. I can't live with myself anymore. It was like a koan. And he had this great awakening. And he was like, his depression was over. He was a happy camper from then on. He just couldn't find any reason to like do anything after that. He was just content with being. So he just like sat on a park bench for like a few months, apparently. <laughs> and finally he got up and like, well, I guess I can do things too. So um, then, um, Rupert's, Rupert's Paris latest book is called I Am. And it's kind of a long kind of poem, like a hundred page poem. Um, but I'll just read you like the first page. Now, now that we, um, we have, a, uh, now that we're kind of more intimate with Lady Gaga, talking about this week, she, she is the true self, the Gaga. Kazan uses that double self is kind of like big self, um, according to Francis Cook's footnotes. I am. See if you can, as you hear this, um, see if you can be this I. It's nothing mysterious, right? It's just that which is aware all the time. When we say, I am aware of whatever's happening right now, it's that I. All of us already are this I. And this is how Rupert expresses it. I am. I could stop there by filling the pages of the book. I have no words to express myself, but all words express only me. I have no meaning, but 
impart meaning to all that is perceived. I am without beginning and end, but all things begin and end in me. I have no name, but am called by all names. I have no form, but all form indicates me. I have no origin, but am the origin of all things. I am without division, but all divisions me. I am the knowing with which all things are known. I am the presence in which all things appear. I am the substance out of which all things are made. I am and know myself alone. Calculus adds in. Know that knowing knows only knowing. I shine in the mind as the knowledge I am. I pervade the body as the feeling of being. I am felt in the heart as peace and happiness. It is my being that shines as existence in all things. I am the longing and sadness and the longed for in all longing. I am the expecting and the expected in all expectation. I am the restlessness of the restless. I am the peace of the peaceful. I am happiness itself. Page one. Back to our house ancestor, Keizanze. If you want an intimate understanding of enlightenment, you should get rid of you and Gotama, these individual people, at once and quickly understand this matter of I. I is the great earth and beings as and. That's a weird sentence, right? So we're referring back to the original statement. I and the great earth and beings simultaneously attained away. So Kazan's comment is I is the great earth and beings as and. So if that sounds a little weird, that's this translation, but you could also translate it as um, I together with the great earth and all beings simultaneously in a way, then we could hear Katie's on the same. I is the great earth and beings as together with Can't remember the, the Chinese, but it might be that when we say only a Buddha and a Buddha, only a Buddha together with a Buddha. Um, yo in Japanese. It might be that word. And in quotes, or together with is not I as the old fellow. Gotama, 
So just to now that we've explored I, right? Kaitlin's taking this sentence kind of one piece at a time. We have some sense of, the, of I now. Now he's going to talk about together with the graders and all beings. So, to get this together with is not I as that old fellow Gotama, that person. Examine carefully, deliberate carefully, and clarify this I and this and, or this I and this together with. Even if you clarify the meaning of I, but you fail to clarify and, you lose a discerning eyeball. So um, we could say that uh, I here is the ultimate truth, the ultimate truth in Buddha Dharma, has various versions depending on which school we're talking about. But the criteria to be called ultimate truth um, in all the different versions always means something which is always the case. Ultimate truth can't change. That's different versions of it in different schools. Like, like in the middle way school, the ultimate truth is emptiness. It never changes. And in the, in the mind only or Yogacara tradition, the ultimate truth is the non-duality of subject and object. And the non-duality never changes. Yes. So would another one be Shramala uh, Devi's Tathagata Garbha and things that appear to be aspirations. Yeah, so can I ask, um, in the Srimala Devi Sutra that some of us have been studying this practice period, um, she says that, uh, that uh, thanks for reminding me about Srimala Devi because I thought of her in the previous paragraph, just as reading it, and then I forgot by the end of the paragraph when um, when uh, when she when Kazan says um, Gotama's eye pupil becomes the fleshly body and it becomes each person um, and so on. I think here is Gotama's eye pupil. I think is another name for eye. And it becomes each of us. And Sri Maladevi says um, that Tathagata Garbha, Buddha nature, is the ground and foundation of all conditioned experiences, all conditioned things arise from the ground of Tathagata Garbha. This is like this, that, or you could say um, arise from awareness. The awareness is the ground and foundation of all conditioned impermanent phenomena. And it itself is unconditioned. The ultimate truth is unconditioned. So now Karen asks, um, we also hear Sri Maladeva saying that um, following on this line of thought, she says that Tathagatagarva, the, the Buddha heart, Tathagatagarva is fancy word, you could say the Buddha heart, the essence of the Buddha is the Tagadagarva or Buddha nature. And um, it's the basis and foundation of all conditioned things. And, and some of the conditioned things 
are these um, illusory thoughts that seem to hide the Tathagatagara, seem to hide the, the, the true nature of awareness, <laughs> don't they? Like our, we're, because we're, we, they seem to hide it because we're so caught up in the thoughts and the emotions that we forget that, we're, that there's an awareness of the thoughts and emotions. The thoughts and emotions are expressions of awareness. They're arising dependent on the basis we call awareness. But then they, so they're actually made of awareness. And yet they also seem to obscure awareness. Awareness manifests itself as the thought like, I don't know what to do here. I don't know how to find a way here. That thought, um, it's actually nothing but the knowing of that thought, seems to hide the knowing of the thought. Because we're so into the thought, we're so into the experience. Seeing a color seems to um, hide the knowing of the color. Of course it doesn't really hide the knowing of the color, but it, it was so into the objects of experience that, that the, uh, when we're looking at the color, we forget that really it's just the knowing of color. And, and isn't that true for mountains and rivers? And... Yeah, mountains and rivers um, appear in Gotama's eyeball. And, uh, and past lives too. Past lives. <laughs> Yesterday's story was the knowing of past lives. Yeah, so the, so the ultimate um, truth, I would say, you know, offhand if somebody said, what's the ultimate truth in the Srimana Navy Sutra? Um, before your question, I would have said, well, the Dharmakaya is, is right. expounded in, and described in that sutra. And then, and then the Dharmakaya is, um, Tathagatagarbha, what is Tathagatagarbha? It's the Dharmakaya, the reality body of all Buddhas, you could say unobscured awareness is the Dharmakaya. Or what is the Tagadigarva? It's when this unobscured awareness is mixed together with the obscurations. Which seem to me like I together with mountains. Mm, okay. Yeah, so I we should examine this I. The I, you could say, is the Dharmakaya and Srimala Devi Sutra. And the um, together with is the um, all the mountains and the waters that appear. Uh, or, you know, we'd say experience, experience of mountains and waters mixed in with the pure Dharmakaya. The changing experiences mixed in with the pure Dharmakaya. And we say, what about the actual mountains and waters? But, but um, in Buddha Dharma, I think almost from the get-go, Buddha Dharma is always looking at our own experience. So forget about some mountains and, and waters outside of our experience. We're, we, there's nothing to say about those things. But the ones that we experience are mixed together with um, the, uh, the pure Dharmakaya, and therefore, and they seem to obscure it. But if we look carefully, they don't really obscure it. They reveal it. Yes? Could you say something about the... Uh 
the first words of the Buddha on his birth when he takes these steps yeah. in different directions and points above and points below and says, Yes. Yeah. I alone am the world honored one. So what's this alone as opposed to? Is it yeah. yeah, so I thought of that story too. The Buddha's, this says it's his first lion's roar, but I think elsewhere we hear that really the Buddha's first lion's roar was immediately after he was born. He pointed to the heavens above and to the earth below, and he said, um, everywhere up there, everywhere down there, everywhere, everywhere, um, I alone am the world honored one. So same I. <laughs> Some people are, I was really celebrating that story in, in Santa Cruz and people were like, do we have to say that the Buddha said, I, I am one in the world, I know it just feels so icky to me. <laughs> conceded. Conceded, yeah. Conceded. Yeah. But we have to understand what I, what I is meant here. And then it's, then it's the Buddha's first direct pointing to the nature of reality as soon as he was born. And um, yeah, you could say that story is a little different because he doesn't say it together with, he says, I alone, and um, alone is this nice word in English because if you break it apart, it's all one. And that's what being alone is, right? It's truly, truly alone means there's no other. So be, to be truly alone is to be in the realm of all one. Right? So you could say Buddha is always alone because there's no other. Not like lonely because he thinks there's another that should be um, hanging out with him. <laughs> but uh, um, alone, truly, truly alone, where um, all the apparent others are ourself. So I could say that in a way, maybe that was like just the ultimate truth when Buddha was born. And then in his enlightenment, he thought, maybe I should bring in the relative truth too. So people, um, can, can explore the relationship between the ultimate and the relative. So, so if the ultimate truth is I, we could say the conventional truth is together with, or and. <laughs> What's the conventional truth in this story? And. <laughs> so hearing it in this way, um, as the two truths, classic and very helpful, I think, Buddhist teaching, the ultimate truth, which is always unchanging and complete and um, indestructible, and the relative truth, which is um, the truth of, of changing appearances and um, constantly impermanent, these, um, these marks of all conditioned things like impermanence and discontent and, uh, and not self apply to the conventional truth. We could say not self, all, all conditioned things are not self, is the conventional truth. And I alone am the honored one is the ultimate truth. Big self is ultimate truth, and the not self teachings are exploring the conventional truth. The conventional truth is conditioned and impermanent. So, and, and then the, the, the great thing about the teaching of the two truths. I think um, most, at least the Mahayana tradition, will always make sure to say that these two truths are not separate. 
once you kind of get the get the um, the definitions of them, then we see how they're actually not really two truths. They're like two different ways of looking at the same reality, right? Like when when we um, look for the eye pupil, it's just an empty space. Like literally, if you look for your eye pupil now, you just you try really looking for it and more and more, the more I look for the eye people, the more I feel the sense of this boundless space that I'm looking at the, that I thought was the eye people. Isn't it kind of like that when you look for your own eye people? And you can say the empty space is the unchanging, it always looks the same. <laughs> if you walk outside, it's gonna look like the same empty space. You could say that's the ultimate, but then all the fullness filling in the empty space. If you walk outside, that's going to look different. That which fills the space is the conventional truth. But that's a nice example of how the conventional and the ultimate truths are not really two. Right? And this is again, like, is this stuff, um, is this stuff that we're seeing and hearing in the room happening to awareness? No, it's not really, it hasn't happening to this empty space. No, the empty space is boundless. Is it happening in the empty space? Yeah, it kind of feels more like the sights and sounds are happening in my eye pupil, this big empty space. But even that's a little bit like, how am I going to pack all this stuff into this eye pupil? But if we say all the stuff is happening as the empty space of the eye pupil, there is nothing other than knowing or awareness that we're calling flowers and candles and Buddhas and people. It's happening. These things are happening as the knowing moment, as awareness. That, that you could say is the unity of the two truths. The as version is a, is a great example. Of, we can talk about all the stuff and we can talk about the space in which it's happening, but they're really not two different realities. So regarding the non-duality of the two truths, the ultimate and the convention, Kazan says, this being so, I and and are neither identical nor different. I and together with are neither identical nor different. Truthfully, your skin, flesh, bones, and marrow are totally and or together with the lord of the house is i that's one of um Kazan's epithets for buddha nature the lord of the house what's the common name for the lord of the house lady gaga, <laughs> lady gaga. <laughs> I, that's what he says, the Lord of the house is I, capital I or um, Lady Gaga. It has nothing to do with skin, flesh, bones, and marrow, nor has it anything to do with the four elements and the five aggregates. Now, we're saying these are neither these two truths are neither identical nor different. That's that's a way it's often put, right? They're neither identical because we can talk about them as two different aspects, 
but they're not different either. That sounds to, to many people who say, well, these two truths are neither identical nor different. If you, without examining this, if you say that to someone else, that's just one of those weird Zen paradoxes that doesn't make any sense. Form itself is emptiness, emptiness is form. You can't make any sense of that. But hopefully on this last day of Sashin, um, we can, it's not actually a paradox. It's not really paradoxical, it's just actually an accurate description. Form itself is emptiness. So, but neither identical nor different. Your skin, flesh, bones, and marrow, this stuff, are totally this together with conventional truth. And the Lord of the house is I, the ultimate truth. And that I has nothing to do with skin, flesh, bones, and marrow. You could say the ultimate truth has nothing to do with the conventional truth, even though it's inseparable from it. It has nothing to do with the four elements and the five aggregates. Ultimately, if you wish to know the undying person in the hut, do not separate from this present skin bag here and now. And this is a quote from um, our lineage ancestor Shurto Sekito Kisen Daisho, who also wrote the merging of difference and unity. He wrote a song called The Song of the Grass Hut, Song of the Grass Roof Hermitage. And this is the final line. If, if you wish to know the undying person in the hut, the ultimate undying one, don't separate from the skin bag here and now. It's not somewhere outside of our body, but Kazan saying, but it's not these, we, the body in Buddhist terms is the four elements and the five and the form skanda, body and mind, the, the five aggregates and the four elements. So that has nothing to do with the ultimate truth of I, and yet, Kazan quotes Sekidoki Sen saying, if you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from the skin bag here and now. This is the this is the Zen version of the unity of the two truths. Thus, do not think of it as the great earth and beings as separate from I. Although the seasons change and the mountains, rivers, and great earth are different over time, you should realize that because this is the old fellow Gotenus raising his eyebrows and blinking his eyes, all this is that one body standing independent and open within the myriad things, which is um, referring to a old Zen story, case 64 in the Book of Serenity, without getting into the details. Um, another vert translation of, the, of this quote is, um, in myriad forms, a single body is revealed. Just 
also this is all about the, the unity of the two truths and it's a Zen discussion about this. Like the, somebody says in myriad forms, one single body is revealed. These conversations about too. And then the person's friend says, well then do we eliminate the myriad forms to reveal the one body? And it's about, do you eliminate or not eliminate? It's a great story to explore. So Kazan's quoting pieces of his story here. Um, um, in myriad forms, a single body is revealed. It eliminates the myriad forms and does not eliminate the myriad forms. That's um, what this other koan is exploring. Uh, and the Zen ancestor Faryan said, you cannot say whether it eliminates the myriad forms or doesn't eliminate the myriad forms. It's this kind of paradoxical thing that it's hard to talk about. To see the one body, do you eliminate the myriad forms? Or do you see it in the myriad forms? Can we do we do we have to eliminate the images on the screen to see the screen? Or can we see it in the images? But if we're really just looking at the images, how can we see the screen at the same time? We have these issues. Zen people have these issues. It <laughs> <laughs> really resonated with that. I was just thinking a lot about thinking about the, some of the Asian masters we talk about, the backbones, skin bag. It's, it's sort of like that helps a little bit in not identifying with it. So I'm looking at my hand. Yeah. It's just, it's skin yeah. Bag, right? <clears throat> And then intimately being intimately involved with that, and, and, and then knowing that, that, yeah, it's the same. It is ultimate. Okay, this is ultimate reality. Yeah. It's like, I think in the, is it the Mumon Khan or somewhere there's a koan? How is my hand just like Shakyamuni Buddha's hand? Um, but yeah, this skin bag, which comes up in the old answer, it sounds a little derogatory, like it's really talking about our body. <laughs> it's, a bag of, it's a bag of skin, but I don't think we have to hear it as derogatory. I, it can sound that way, but maybe we could hear it as kind of just playful. We're so attached to the body generally, right? We don't, we don't treat it as a skin bag. We don't want to treat it as just some old skin bag and not take care of it. We want to take care of it, but in a balanced um, way, um, knowing it's true nature, something like that. But yeah, we, we, we tend to identify so strongly with, with the preciousness of our body that maybe that's for the Zen ancestors It's really just a bag of skin, just help us fill, fill with like guts. <laughs> To become maybe that disillusioned. Yes. We're instructed to drop off body and mind as a way of um, 
coming to know our Buddha nature. But in the grass hut, the instruction is do not separate from this bag. So can separate or do not separate, accommodate dropping off or the other way around? Yes, thank you for asking. I did mention this uh, earlier this week when we talked about Dogen's phrase, dropping off body and mind, because um, somebody recently was doing a, uh, like a college paper on, on 101 views of Dogen's phrase, dropping off body and mind. He was interviewing a bunch of Dogen freaks. And, um, and, I, and I told him, I bet you're going to get 101 completely different answers. And I, I'd love to read your paper and, and what I said to him and probably nobody else would say is my current understanding of dropping off body and mind is the body and mind that um, that seem to be um, other than the knowing of them that body and mind dropping them into Gotama's eye pupil where they actually are already living so, so that's not, that's becoming very intimate. That's not dropping them off, getting them away. It's actually dropping them, the version of the body and mind that seem like they're other than awareness, dropping off, dropping those bodies and minds into awareness as awareness. Yeah. So that's, that's, um, that's nice if we feel it. I have to get rid of any experience of body and mind. I want to, I want to enter this neurotic state where somebody can shake this body and, and it won't wake up. Um, that's I don't think we want. I don't really want that one. That drop. That's another kind of dropped off body and mind. It's possible, but I don't think that's what Dogen's talking about. Thank you. If you want to know the undying person in the heart. If you want to drop off body and mind, don't separate from this body and mind here and now. Yeah. Don't make yourself separate from this body and mind. If you want to drop off body and mind here and now, don't separate from this body and mind. But don't think that the body and mind is your true self alone. You could say body and mind is a manifestation of your true self, but uh, it could also sometimes have had a slightly frightening thought that um, that really, if if um, we came to uh, to verify this fully, that if this one awareness is shared and every um, body that appears in it is is equally a a manifestation, an expression of this awareness, uh, dependent on the ground and basis of the target of Yarva, then um, from Kokua's perspective, like, uh, Kokyo's body and Drew's body would be equally my body. Like equally, 
not like, well, cookies is a little bit more mine than yours. They're pretty equal, but more like identical. I still, we, we have the laws of cause and effect. So like, if this body is hungry, Drew might not know it, so I can do this body and do that body. But, um, but uh, strictly speaking, <laughs> right, it's like, uh, I guess the, the frightening part of this implication is, is that um, from this version of myself, uh, Drew is equally important as me. And not only that, but everybody in the universe <laughs> is equally important. That I don't know how I can live completely in such a way. And everything in the universe, even. Everything. Everything, yeah. Yeah, that's why, like, you know, Suzuki or she would say, like, take very good care of the teacup, you know, and hold it with two hands because this is myself. Yeah, so we have the laws of cause and effect that, that help us out. But um, but that's why these um, these bodhisattvas are so courageous to, to receive these precepts tomorrow because those are kind of like a description of what this kind of life might be like. Bodhisattva precepts. And, and hopefully there are enough others out there looking at the world in that way that they'd be taking care of you. <laughs> so we're, you're taking care of them. We're all taking care of each other, yes. We might not always know it. It's true. So um, you can't say whether whether one removes the myriad things or doesn't remove the myriad things in order to reveal the, um, the single body that's revealed in myriad forms. And then, um, so Kazan's playing with that story and there's different dialogues around that story. And um, he says, the Zen teacher, Ditsang said, well, what do you mean by myriad things? Good question, right? Like, if we're talking about to see the one body, do we remove the myriad things or not remove them? Yes. Well, what do you really mean by these myriad things? What are they? <clears throat> Kazan says, therefore, practice fully and sufficiently, develop full mastery, and clarify both Gautama's enlightenment and your own as well. You should try to figure this out by seeing such a koan, kind of meditate in this koan of the Buddha's seeing the morning star and his lion's roar. Work on this. Let the answer flow from your heart without borrowing the words of former Buddhas or contemporaries. On the next day for explanations, I want you to present your understanding with a decisive word. And, uh, so wonderfully apropos, I think that, as I recall, Griffith Folk's footnote says this, this um, the day for explana explanations is called Shosan <laughs> ceremony. So that's when you come forward and you have these dialogues. So here it's saying maybe maybe at this time, it's, and then our next Shosan ceremony, um, um, express something about this and we can dialogue about it. So we're having a show us on ceremony today. So 
you're welcome to bring up anything from Sashimi um, to um, express how, how you see it or ask about how to see it or anything about outside of Sashimi too. Anything is um, in the meeting, we'll turn the down on you. This mountain monk, Kazan, would like to say a few humble words about this case. Would you like to hear them? <laughs> <laughs> a splendid branch stands out on the old plum tree. At the same time, obstructing thorns and brambles flourish everywhere. Obscurations arise from the perfect old plum tree in Lady Gaga's garden. At the same time, thorns and brambles flourish everywhere. Yes. So I'm wondering if you could say something, getting back to the skin bag and not separating from the skin bag. You might say something about uh, Dogen's deep faith in cause and effect. Dogen Zenji has an essay called Deep Faith, Deep Trust in Cause and Effect. Is he, uh, is he commenting on the fox con? He does comment on the fox con, but I'm, I'm thinking more in the realm of like whether we get rid of or we don't separate from, like how to this, yeah. this particular meandering path through the two extremes of, mm -hmm. of believing, of looking just at the objects on the screen. Mm -hmm you know, the myriad things yeah. and uh, not separating from. Yeah. Yeah, the myriad things and this body and mind, the five aggregates, the 18 datus, uh, all of these, uh, all, this, all this is the realm of cause and effect and uh, deep faith or trust in the workings of cause and effect is, uh, is seeing that I would say that this is a truth, a kind of reality, a, a conventional reality. That's the world we live in. And, um, and there's no uh, escape from it. Even for greatly enlightened people, they, they cannot evade or escape the, the laws of, cause and effect and dependent arising itself uh, because there's nowhere to go outside of that. And uh, so trusting that that is so and trusting that um, the evolving of cause and effect is, is, uh, is naturally taking care of everything even when it looks like this way cause and effect is going here, it looks like it's not really working out so well. <laughs> like the environment of this planet, it's, it's just cause and effect manifested, but, uh, but we can trust it that, it, that it's 
It's following the laws of cause and effect. And we, of course, are each of us part of the, the laws of cause and effect. So, so it's cause and effect is never something outside of our own life. It is our own life and the life of everybody in the great earth and all beings. So trusting that that is the way that that um, that the old plum and tree uh, sprouts. That is the way that uh, I um, operate in the world and not separating from that. I think even it, it's, it's um, you know, sometimes we might talk about enlightenment sickness would be getting like caught in the ultimate and like wanting to ignore the relative or something. But uh, I'll, sometimes I wonder, is that even a real possibility? It, it could maybe be kind of an attitude, a nihilistic sort of attitude, the attitude of like, um, it doesn't matter, nothing matters. But soon enough, if we go through life with the attitude of nothing matters, um, things will become quite painful. <laughs> and so, so uh, I don't think it's possible to be just in the ultimate without the relative. You can't um, get up and walk a step. But the integration is, is, uh, is good to always keep in mind. Something like that. I wonder what Eckhart Tolle did when he stepped up and he got up from the bench. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was he, was that a kind of a Zen sickness? Like, did he feel like he couldn't move or moving from the bench would be? Would be um, would be going astray or something. Yeah, I don't know what he's in, but now he's got this big worldwide program going. Filling out the theaters. Yeah, he's definitely doing a lot of stuff now. Yes, I wonder. Um, Eckhart Tolle and also the Buddha. I feel like uh, part of the story is the compassion that they felt moved by to kind of take that next step, you know? Yeah, yeah. Compassion. This is, this is uh, essential. And sometimes in stories, it's not getting mentioned directly so much in this um, record of light. And uh, my intuition of why that is so, since it's such a central part this is that um, is that is that it may be Kazan's deep faith and deep trust that um, that uh, if we really um, become familiar with this I, with clarify and verify this I and its relation to and its non-duality, the non-duality of I and and then um, that is, that's the ground for true compassion, natural, natural uh, compassion to, um, to come forth because um, there's no separation. Like everybody is equally in my body. If we really could get to that place, that is like the, you know, the limit of compassion, right? Everyone, everyone's suffering is, as equally as important to take care of as my own suffering. That like 
comes along with that view. And uh, you could say that the problem is that it's hard to fully verify it to that extent, but I think along the way, as we open to this more and more in a kind of gradual way, I think the compassion gradually um, develops. Compassion and kindness, loving kindness and compassion appear. And it, um, it seems to just not naturally um, gradually unfold that way. Maybe not in some extreme way that we like it to. <laughs> Because, because also karmically conditioned patterns are deep. The, these laws of cause and effect. So um, if we've been uh, a kind of that, like, very self-centered or something for a long time, then, uh, then that, that conditioning maybe unfolds gradually. But the principle, I think, stands there. In the unity uh, or I that we share, that is the ground of true compassion, uncontrived kindness and compassion. But also, we can we can uh, develop it in you know conventional ways, like like should I help that person or not right now? It's like 50-50. I'll flip a coin. No, instead of flipping the coin, I'll just do it. You could say that that's not really coming from the ultimate, but it's like a nice training to align. Yeah. We could say really compassion and kindness are the um, um, are the point of all of these teachings in the So extensively, because they're they're there in the background. Thank you. That's a good thought to conclude with. My, uh, my Zogchen teacher, Sohi Rinpoche, um, often on the, the last talk of his retreats, likes to bring up this story. So it's fun to share with you. Um, this was a another lineage of transmission of light and uh, in the Kagyu Tibetan lineage uh, where the great Yogi Milarepa, great Yogi of Tibet, lived out in the caves and sang all these, all these Vajra songs and left us with these, all these pointing outs about everything we've been talking about in his own style, his own house wind that he received from Marpa, who received it from Naropa, who received it from Tilopa. Lineage is very important in all these traditions. And um, his successor, he'd been transmitting the light for a while and the final transmission um, to Gampopa, who would make the, the Kagyu lineage flourish in Tibet. Gampopo um, uh, uh, was about to um, leave the, the practice place in the mountains together and they said farewell and, and, um, and said, as, as Gampopo was walking away, oh, wait a minute, one last final 
transmission of light. And Genpoku uh, said yes, and Nidarepa um, um, turned around and lifted up his robe and showed him his butt. <laughs> <laughs> which was completely covered with calluses like a cow's hoof hard as a cow's hoof because he just sat on these rocks like his whole life and, uh, so that was the, the final transmission <laughs> a very callous but to just take care of this even though their time of practice together was over and our sashin is coming to an end. Um, there's no end to how thick the calluses on our bus can become. <laughs> In other words, we have to keep sitting. We have to keep sitting. Keep sitting forever. Thank you for um, joining us online, devoted. People, any faces that can show themselves? And thank you all for um, coming to this session. Another Rohatsu bites the dust. <laughs> and uh, any merit that might have been gathered through our practice together this week. We uh, we offer it to all appearances, all skin bags throughout space and time, uh, inseparable from Buddha. May all beings quickly realize the unity of the two truths. <laughs>